Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Brian Halligan and Kevin Hale. Kevin's a partner at YC and co-founder of Wufu. Brian's the CEO and co-founder of HubSpot. HubSpot builds software for marketing, sales, and customer service. You can try it out at HubSpot.com. Brian is on Twitter at bhalligan, and Kevin is at ilikevests. All right, here we go. So, Brian, I've listened to a few of your podcasts, and on one of them, you described yourself as an introvert who likes to work from home. That being said, you manage a public company. How do you mesh those two things together? Uh, that's a good question. I am an introvert, and I just try to manage it as best I can. It's hard to be an introvert as a CEO. I'll tell you one thing that's interesting about HubSpot is both founders are introverted, but one is far more introverted than the other. So I'm kind of introverted, and one of you has to be the front man to the band, basically. And Darmesh, yeah. my co-founder, does not want to be that. So I have to kind of play the front man to the band. And so I have to manage my introversion a little bit more carefully than he does. So. Okay. And so what practices do you put into place? Well, uh, I have to manage my energy because people drain energy from me. So a couple hacks I have. Every Wednesday, I work from home all by myself, just my dog and I. And uh, no meetings, no calls, no Zooms, no nothing. I just work on projects, try to get caught up and recharge my batteries. That helps a lot. I tend to take a nap pretty much every day around this time, actually. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Thanks for sacrificing for us. Yeah, I take a little snooze and we have a nap room at Upspot. And uh, I kind of think of a nap as like your brain is just running around and lots of things are going on in your brain. And it's a time for your brain to just kind of settle down. And, and I picture these little mini men with, with like brooms going around, sweeping up all the stuff and organizing it. And everything gets settled down in my brain and then back to work an hour, uh, half hour later. That works like a charm for me. How does that affect your like calendar management? Like normal CEOs, there's nonstop barrage of sort of meetings and people you need to interact with. And so how does that affect you or how do you handle your calendar differently when you're an introvert? Yeah, I basically just block all that day Wednesday so no one can book a meeting there. I have an admin that manages my calendar and she'll typically manage little breaks in the afternoon, maybe at two or three or four, which she'll know if I have a packed day, I'm going to need a little breathing room to kind of catch my breath, take a nap, catch up on some emails and kind of get back at it. And then on a daily schedule basis, do you leave in blocks for like solid focus work or do you just leave it open to like, okay, I can interact with everyone every 15 minutes, you know, like that maker schedule, manager schedule. I typically kind of. leave in like blocks of time where I can recharge and think and catch up an email and do some of that stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's always the part I struggle with, like the uh, the required socializing as, <laughs> as someone who's introverted. Like it's, it's part of the job, but I don't like to recognize uh, it. Yeah, all I can see that. Yep. Yeah. At what point did you realize you were going to have to do something differently to make that work for you? Like when you guys you know, you both what, got you know, started. You like, know what? Uh, when we both got started, there was a we, we were in a, it was called CIC in Cambridge, Mass. It was sort of like pre-WeWork. And there was a couch outside our, our uh, just having to make a couch outside our office. And every day I took a nap and everyone gave me crap for it. Mm. But I don't know, it just worked for me. I think what helped a lot of introverts, I don't know about you guys, is when that lady wrote that what was her name? Wrote that Susan book. Cain. Susan Cain wrote that book. It's like, oh, I'm not as strange as I thought I was. Lots of people are like this. And I didn't feel as badly about wanting to take this time away. Didn't feel as badly as say, it was saying, you know, I've been in meetings all day. I know we're supposed to have dinner tonight. Can we push it to tomorrow night? I'm just out of gas right now. Uh, and I think a lot more introverts felt comfortable doing that after that book came out. Yeah, I think labels can also be a, a crutch. 
Yep. Um, and I, I felt that after that book came out. It's like, sorry, I'm an introvert. I don't do this stuff. I use that crutch a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I use it a little bit. My co-founder uses it even more than I do. Uh, but yeah. But life goes on. You can be an introvert and CEO of a public company. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so you guys met in business school? We did. Okay. So I'll tell you how we met. Great. It was the, the night before business school at like a cocktail get together at the Marriott Hotel. And I was on my second Sam Adams. That's what we drink back there in Boston. And a woman comes up to me, a blonde woman, and she starts chatting with me. And I just assumed she was a student, but she asked me a lot of questions, like really pounded me with like an interview almost. And nice enough conversation, it goes away. And I just thought she was a student. But what was going on there was Darmesh was there with his wife. That was his wife. So what Darmesh does, my co-founder, is he hides behind the plant in the corner of the cocktail party, sends his wife out to interview potential people that he might want to talk to, and then goes and chats with them. And the scouting report on me was... You'll never like him. You two will never hit it off. <laughs> He's into the Red Sox. He's into the Grateful Dead. You, you don't even know who the Grateful Dead is, and you don't even own a pair of Red Sox. Like, it's never going to work. That's how the two of us met. <laughs> Man. And so what convinced him to go over to you? Uh, we didn't actually chat that day based on the scouting report. But there was a class we took. We both went to Sloan together. Uh, and we sat next to each other in the class and the teacher assigned a project on stock option pricing or something like that. And he said, well, why don't we work together on the project? And we went out for Indian food that day and we discovered we had a lot in common. Um, we both like doing business with startups and with small business owners and trying to turn small businesses into big businesses. Back then we were into something that's passe now, but it's called Web 2.0, sort of a old meme that we're really into. And we were both very entrepreneurial. He had started a couple of companies and I had worked in a couple of startups and done pretty well. So mm. we kind of started on the journey on that project we did together at uh, Sloan. What was that project? Project was about how to price and value stock options in a, in a company. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, kind of. Um, what I'm trying to think of is like after that, what was like the first little project that you guys worked on together that was like outside of school that yeah. made you sort of realize like, oh, we're the right ones to be working together? Yeah, we started talking about HubSpot at lunch that day. And we, it was something called LegalSpot, not HubSpot, which was going to be a suite of applications to help you manage your law firm. Hmm. And we tinkered with it all through business school. We put it in the uh, business plan competition, the 50000 50, now it's $100,000 business plan competition. Uh, we worked on it in a class called New Enterprises. We we tinkered with the project for a while. And then when, when I, I graduated a year before he did, actually, he was on a different track than I was. And I spent uh, about nine months in a little venture firm as an EIR. And we tinkered with it. You know, we'd meet once or twice a week and work on the idea and pitch it to law firms. And we kind of zigged and zagged a couple times. And then t- during that time, we decided, well, it's not about building a suite of applications for a law firm. One of the applications we were talking about was a marketing application, was how do you get found on the internet? How do you get found in Google and social? How do you get found in the blogosphere? How do you grow business? And all the law firms are interested in that. And so we pivoted. Instead of being a vertically specific application for law firms, we were going to build a marketing application for everyone. What do you think your, your unique insight was at that point? You're like marketing, whatever. I mean, at the time, I'm sure there are way fewer companies doing internet marketing. Oh, so there were 17. Yeah. <laughs> now there's 6,000. Yeah. I think we were pretty good at framing it as to 
everything in HubSpot is rooted in end user behavior. So normal human beings, how are they changing the way they live? How are they changing the way they work, how they shop and how they buy stuff? And what does that mean for marketers? And at the time, there was a sea change going on. There were two sea changes. One, humans were changing the way they work. They were living in Google, living in social, living in the blogosphere. So there was a big shift there. The second shift that was going on was humans were becoming very good at blocking marketing out. Caller ID, spam protection, ad blocker, all that kind of stuff. And so we came up with the idea that marketers needed to turn their playbook on their head instead of doing outbound old school stuff. How do they pull people in and match the way they market with the way people shop and buy? That was the basic insight. And then we pulled it together in a suite of applications for mere mortals who would want to do this that didn't have a bunch of developers running around that could do it and grow their business. And I think part of it was we framed it as this inbound thing versus outbound. The versus really works on the internet. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that worked was pulling it all together and building something not for technologists, but for mere mortals. There's a lot more mere mortals out there than technologists. And how did you guys contextualize yourselves and figure out pricing in the beginning? Like, did you, what was your pitch even like? Pricing, uh, we had no idea how to price it. I remember I came back from one of my meetings and I said to Dharmesh, I said, you know what? I actually think this guy wants to buy something from us. He asked me how much it costs. <laughs> and he said, what'd you say? He said, I don't know. Let's, let's talk about it. What do you think? And we went back and forth and. We randomly came up with 200, very scientifically came up with $250 a month back then. <laughs> so I went back, got the credit card later that afternoon for $250 a month. And HubSpot was $250 a month for the first like six years of HubSpot. We didn't change it at all. Um, and then we got more sophisticated with our pricing. And uh, now there's a lot of different products and price points. What would you do differently now? Like if you were to start over again and think about pricing, like knowing what you know now, how would you have thought about pricing? I think I would have flipped it on its head. We had designed HubSpot to be a model where you sell it through inside sales. You use inbound to pull lots of leads in, hand them to inside sales reps, have them sell it. The most recent version of HubSpot these days, half our leads come through that. The other half really come through a freemium model where people can try it, use it, bang on it. And then they just like consumer software, they will. And I think this will happen. All B2B enterprise software will turn turn it consumer software where they'll come over a tripwire and they'll buy the software uh, in a much more natural way. And sales reps can call on customers versus on prospects. So I would have started with freemium. Mm. Hmm. And in what degree, like what was HubSpot? The first customer. Yeah. Did you have any software ready? Yeah, like, okay. it was um, <laughs> it was rough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, because this was also this was pre AWS as well, right? Way pre AWS. We built it on .NET Nuke and hosted it on a server under a desk. There you uh, go. And uh, <laughs> it was janky. And and I would tell you the early days of HubSpot, the software didn't do much, and so customers would ask us for help. And so we made up for the inefficiencies in the software by giving them good advice on how to optimize their website and how to get going in social. And what we didn't want to fall into was the trap of building something that was a consulting company. And so we said all the stuff that we're consulting on, how to set your website up, how to get links into your site, um, how to set up your, and it wasn't even Twitter and Facebook, it was Dig and Reddit back then, how to get everything set up appropriately so you can grow. How do we take all that stuff we know and build software to do it, to automate it. That was basically the model in the early days. And I remember I had an early customer. Uh, the name of the company was CEO Dad. It was a professional comedian. Wait, what? CEO Dad. CEO Dad. And he's a comedian. He's a comedian, yeah. A dad, professional dad jokes. Oh, okay. And uh, he was setting up a site in my, uh, in our first sales guy, Mark Roberge, um, sold him on HubSpot. And he said, yeah, our co-founder, he's going to get you all set up in the software and he'll help you with anything you want. 
And I said, okay, that's interesting. So I got the account and I helped him set up his blog. And I remember he wrote his first blog article. And he said, can you set this up and get it on the interwebs? <laughs> I said, well, why don't I teach you how to do that? And so I got him on the phone. I'm setting it up. And he said, what do you think of my article? I said, I haven't read it yet. And uh, so I read it and I read through it and read the whole thing. And he, he said, well, stop. He said, start reading it over again. And he said, I want you to read it out loud. I'm reading through the article and the thing out loud. And he said, stop. I said, what? He said, you're not laughing. I said, I know it's not funny. <laughs> that was the early days of HubSpot. Like, not only helping people set their blog up, but actually, like, posting it and editing it. Like, we, punching we, up jokes. Yes. <laughs> was there any feature that you guys developed in the early days that ended up being, like, this killer feature that all of a sudden, like, changed the direction? Yeah, the created, SEO like, stuff we built was pretty cool in the early days. And... And we built a tool called WebsiteGrader.com that's very popular still. Um, and that was an unbelievable tool. You go to our website, WebsiteGrader.com, and you type your URL in, and you type your competitor's URL in, and it gives you a score on how inboundy your site is. How okay. good are you at attracting links? How good are you at uh, getting found in Google? How's your social media set up? How many followers do you have? All that kind of stuff. Was the competitor check the actual big thing that helped make it really drive people to actually want to change it was one of them yeah it was one of them because you put yours in then you put your competitors in then you taunt them yeah <laughs> or what i would do is I'd show up at a sales call and i put your company in y combinator and then I'd put in whatever 500 startups mass challenge and i would use that as information that was really motivating to get people to move wow and it gave us a lot of credibility i think about selling and modern selling it's about it's about helping people understand that they have a problem and really making that problem real to them. So in the early days of HubSpot, hmm. that was a tool to to really point out, boy, you're falling behind the competition. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit here. You're falling behind all these other folks. What are you going to do? Oh, you need some help with that? Well, let me see. Let me show you a demo of our software. Right. That's sort of how we thought of it. I think the, another really cool thing that you guys do is that you eat a lot of your own dog food. Like yep. You guys kind of try to practice as much as you preach. Is there anything that you guys initially had hypothesis around that didn't work out? That you're like, oh, we think this would be sort of a good thing yes. to do. And then when you put it out there, it was like, oh, that didn't work out so well. The one thing that we thought for sure, we were right about a lot. The one thing we were dead wrong about is we thought the whole world, we thought this idea of people having customized, gorgeous websites and bespoke websites was just a foolish idea. Like, I don't have a custom car, for example. Mm. Um, there can be a thousand templates out there. That's enough for the world to have. But it turns out everybody wants their own custom website. And for the longest time, we we're like, stop worrying about the design. Use our template. Put your blog on it. Put your site. You're going to be happy. We lost that battle. <laughs> we fought that battle for years. <laughs> Yeah. And and so, at what point did it feel like you really shifted to uh, a startup from a consulting company? Because in the beginning, you're spending all these extra hours doing things that you definitely can't do forever. Yeah, it was probably just gradual. But, you know, a year in, a year and a half in, we were probably almost all software. Okay. And at that point, were you profitable or had you raised money? Uh, we had raised, we raised a million of angel in Boston uh, pretty early on. And then, yeah, we did a Series A. Back then, we did what was a big Series A. It was uh, five million bucks, now a small Series A. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the split between, like, you, you talked a bit about, like, in the beginning, it felt like a consultant saying you're giving all this advice. Like, you said you eventually turned that into software. But I imagine some of it was just turned into content that's sitting mm -hmm. on your side. What was the split between actual software features versus content you had on the side to help people just get going? Like, 
documentation, et cetera. Uh, we tried to get as much of it in the software as we possibly could. Some of it's hard to put in software. Yeah. We also created a, a university, HubSpot Academy, and we made really high quality, uh, really nice videos to teach people about this stuff. We were, we were a content machine. And I still think of HubSpot as a little bit like it's code, there's software, there's content, all that content out there, and there's a community around it. That's sort of how HubSpot works underneath the covers. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, because it it makes sense with the website competitor comparison. What is it called again? Just so I get it Webs- right. Well, WebsiteGrader.com. WebsiteGrader.com. Uh, SEO is such this like vague, murky term. It's and the then most when you- underrated marketing thing there is. Still. Yes. We wow. get 10 million visitors a month through SEO. It's fantastic for us. Fantastic. <laughs> why, why do you call it underrated? Because I feel like a lot of people know. Do you think it's just people have turned their attention away from it? Or I just seems so old? turned their attention away from, from mm. it. And I think people are really focused on ads. And ads have gotten a lot better over time. And people perceive that SEO has gotten harder over time. And I just think people have lost focus on it. And it's if you do it right, it is a goldmine. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a huge motivator for us to do YouTube versus just a podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause YouTube is just like, there's not a lot of good content out there. Yep. I mean, like you've done some videos, but even once you get to the second page, when you search your name, it falls off pretty quick. Yep. Yeah. So you can just do it for anyone. So I want to kind of get back to the beginning stuff, but we're going in the direction of trends and I, I want to sure. talk about that stuff too. So in terms of the future of marketing, where do you see like the big trends happening? Yeah, if, if, if I thought there was, if the arbitrage opportunity when we started HubSpot in 2006 was generating leads online, um, I don't think that's the arbitrage opportunity. There's still an arbitrage opportunity there now, but there's a new one. And I, I like to describe the new one with my morning routine. <laughs> so I get up every morning on my Casper mattress. I put on my Warby Parker glasses. Take my phone and I turn on Spotify and then I shave with my Dollar Shave Club razor and I put on my trunk club outfit and I take a lift to work. And what's fascinating to me about my mornings is those six startups and they are startups are all very much part of my life and have completely disrupted the incumbents in those space. And they've done it with much lighter go-to-market models and a gorgeous end-to-end customer experience. And I feel like all those industries are being disrupted dramatically by people who are just better at customer experience, step function better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's coming to B2B uh, in a big way. Like if you haven't already figured that out in B2C, you're kind of screwed. In B2B, this is coming, I think, in a big way. What's a good example of that? I think freemium is coming at it. I think it, with the way Atlassian sells, the way Zoom sells, that's the future. You look at the metrics behind the Zoom IPO that just came out the other day. Yeah. Holy crap, do they have virality right, freemium right? Same with Atlassian. Their model is fantastic. And so I think there's a new breed of software companies that have much, not only better go-to-markets, lighter go-to-markets, but it really matches the way people want to buy. People don't want to have to wait for your sales rep to book a sales call. People don't want to have to do that stuff anymore. They want to go to your website. They want to be able to chat with someone, use the free product. Oh, they get confused, chat a little bit more, buy it. Oh, you want to talk to our CIO and spread it? Great, let's have a conversation then. I think this transformation in the customer experience is coming to B2B, and I think it's an arbitrage opportunity today. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the same people that are using Instagram on their phone are using your enterprise software. Yes. Right. So I think the way people buy Spotify is the way people are going to buy enterprise software in the future. All the new models are end user driven. The Zoom thing is fantastic. Their their S1, it's an unbelievable company. I couldn't believe the numbers on it. But Atlassian is another one that I think has it exactly right. Interesting. And so when it comes to actual like outbound or inbound marketing trends, what other stuff do you see? I think outbound is largely just dead. Okay. Uh, I don't think cold calls work at all. Uh, in fact, I think they're they're negative. 
you cold call into someone and they don't answer the phone, so you leave them a message and then you follow the methodology that's out there and you cold call them again three days later and then they tell you to cold call them again three days later and all you've done is just ruin your brand. I mean, you really piss that person off. And so I don't think that outbound works. I think inbound, I just stretched the, the, the definition of inbound of really creating a, a lovely end-to-end experience that matches the way people actually want to buy today. Okay. I also just think in the world today, the other thing that's changed is supply and demand has really changed along every every dimension. Uh, it used to be really hard to start a company. Back in 2006, it was hard. It was expensive. You need to get an office mm-hmm. space for a year. You didn't have AWS. Like it co- The startup costs were amazing. Now the startup costs are incredibly low. You go to Y Combinator, you go to... You name it, everything is cheap or almost free. And that's great. That it, It's never been a better time to start a company. The downside of that is it's never been a harder time to scale a company. Really hard to scale, really hard to break out. You guys see it more than anyone, I'm sure. Very, very hard to break out in today's day and age. And it used to be, how did you break out? Well, you need to have a better product. Your product has to be 10 times better than the competition. Today, the way you break out, it's hard to do that on the product side. You get in front of your competition a little bit, wow, they catch up quickly. The way you get ahead of the competition is create a go-to-market experience that's 10 times better than the competition. That's the way I see companies winning today. That's how Zoom does it. That's how Lassie does it. Frankly, it's how HubSpot does it. This is kind of the future, I think, in B2B. I think it's almost the past of B2C. People are figuring this out already. Hmm. How do you apply these ideas to startups with little or no funding? I just don't, I don't think you need a ton of money today to build a great customer experience. It's not something that costs a lot of money. Creating word of mouth doesn't cost a lot of money. I think old, your success these days is much more about the width of your brain than the width of your wallet. I don't think you need a ton of dough to grow your company. Ad dollars are not, that's the most expensive way to grow your company. It's not a good way to do it. There's an argument to be made that for a lot of young companies that like to do inbound right, it's a, it's actually a good like long-term investment. But in terms of getting like short-term sort of growth and getting results on a week-to-week basis, which a lot of times we're working with our companies to do, yep. uh, it's really hard to like have that investment and, and, and sort of hold off on sort of outbound stuff. And so I'm just wondering like, what are ways that people could think about doing inbound that helps them get that sort of like results that they need sure. to maintain momentum? It sort of depends on who you are, but like I remember the early days of HubSpot. Darmesh and I would write two blog articles a week and we'd compete to see who could get more mm-hmm. uh, leads from the article. And we, and we have a very friendly competition, but we used to do that. And we figured out, you know, you have to write really good content. Of course, that's table stakes. You have to have a great title and would A-B test the titles a lot. Um, and you've got to get, you've got to yourselves had to have a large presence in the social media sphere. So you yourself could market it. Maybe you could do that through some of your friends as well. And you could get it to go. And once a week or so, we would have a, 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 you know, a home run blog article. And that's how we really started the company. How long did it take before, like, you got to be seen as experts in your sort of space so that people would listen to you and be like, oh, I should try their tool? Cause for us. Still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, like it took us a couple of years. Like we basically built our audience like on a blog before we even started writing the first lines of code for our startup. You're talking about Wufu or you're talking yeah, about? For yeah, for Wufu. And we had started this blog called Particle Tree and we literally didn't know what we were going to do. But we were like, we heard these guys at 37 Signals. Yes. They they <laughs> basically did their blog first before they ran Basecamp. And I was like, oh man, that's a pretty good plan. So that's what we said. It was like, we could do that at the beginning. That's and, what we did. And I feel like a lot of people <laughs> do undervalue that like, 
do something to build an audience way ahead of time, they get very impatient or they think like, oh, my first couple of blog posts are just going to like be a home run. And usually it's like, it takes a really long time. So for you guys, how long did it take? It didn't take that long. You have to write really good stuff. It has to be timely. Uh, how did you know what was good? Because uh, I think everyone's bar is so different. Yeah, I think I think at the time we were writing, there was not much content out there about how do you market properly on the internet for mere mortals. I think what was also out there was... Okay, I'm not a big Donald Trump fan, but what Donald Trump has mastered is the verses on the internet. Mm-hmm. He's used polarization to his advantage. <sighs> polarization works on the internet. And we did the inbound versus outbound work very well. It made the argument really easy to understand. Yes. Well, I mean, now it's Basecamp to a T. Yep. Yes. Like, so, like, narrative generation in terms of, like, you versus opposition. Like, understanding, as well as, like... As well as quantitative stuff. We did a lot of quant stuff that we posted online. Would take mm-hmm. analysis of those website grader reports. We'd post them online that were very interesting. We did a fair amount of quant stuff. Today, if I were doing it, I might do the blog. I would be tempted to do a podcast. Podcasting, people spend time listening to podcasts. you got to ma- match the way you market to the way people buy. I would be tempted to do something, a video cast, so you're on YouTube once a week, something like that. Uh, I'd be all over Instagram. I'd be all over Twitter. I'd be all over the new stuff. I'd, I'd, I'd tell you what I wouldn't be all over. I wouldn't be all over ads. I think of it like this. What an ad is, let's say I want to put an ad on your, um, I wanted to buy an ad on your um, sure. on your podcast. It cost me whatever it would cost. I'm essentially renting space on your podcast, right? I rent it once a week, yeah. get the space. YC doesn't have to know. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> what I really want is I want to say, yeah, your podcast is great. I want to create my own podcast yeah. and I want to rent myself space on the podcast. Totally. That's the basic idea behind it. And it used to be really expensive to start your own radio station. Holy crap. I got to buy, <laughs> buy the whatever the frequency and I got to get a studio and all this stuff. Now it costs you nothing. I can start a radio station today. There's been a big disruption in the content creation industry. If you can create good stuff, Man, it's a big arbitrage opportunity. And, and when you guys got started, were you uh, blogging for yourselves or for the company? Because this is a question I often get from founders. Like, should I come out here as like Brian Halligan or should I just be on the HubSpot company. blog? You should do it on the company's blog. Company's blog. Yeah. Why do you say that? Because uh, you're building a company and you want the domain authority flowing into the company. You want those links flowing into the company. Uh, you want to associate your brand with the company in a big way. You don't want a separate domain for your name, building up all this domain authority. It doesn't help the company enough. Mm-hmm. I think the guys who were pretty good at this were um, Andreessen Horowitz. Mm-hmm. And they did it, I think they did A16Z slash the person's name. Well, P- P- Mark had a blog. He did before. So did, so did PG. And then they moved it. Yeah. PG has not. Uh, they moved it That's, over. PG has always been a, on his own. Which yeah. I thought was a good model. And those guys did a hell of a job in the early days on their blog. Really oh, nice yeah. job. Yeah. Yeah. And they've stopped. Yeah, and it's the, too bad. I miss well, them. there's podcasting doing yeah. YouTube now. I miss uh, Andreessen's uh, Twitter account, too. He's really good. Do you have any other advice for startups with little to no money? Uh, find a good co-founder. Okay. Uh. <laughs> how, and so how did you know that uh, your co-founder was right for you? Uh, I didn't know. I think what happens, I spent a lot of time at Sloan and I just see the co-founders typically, they start the company with someone who has the exact same skill set, like two product developers or two marketers or two former McKinsey people. I think you're better off with somebody who's really on the product side and somebody's on the go-to-market side mm-hmm. and they have a little overlap in the middle and they have similar passions and goals. Uh, I think it gets dangerous when they have the same uh, overlapping skills. Uh, we had a nice overlap there. Mm-hmm. 
Was that your story with your co-founders, Kevin? Uh, all three of us coded, but all of us had different domain expertise. So Ryan did a lot of the backend stuff, some frontend stuff. I did all the design and coding work. And then Chris basically was willing to do whatever. He was a good soldier. So he was like, I will do all the shit work. So he was like, payment integration, fine, I'll do it. I uh, <laughs> if it's a bunch of weird social media or like paperwork, et cetera, he was like, I'll do it. And so he was one of these like <laughs> blessed founders to have where he was just like, I'll do, I'll do anything that needs to be done to make the company successful. Was he non-technical? No, he could program. Oh, wow. So that, that was like kind of amazing. We were really lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's super rare. Um, okay, so in another interview, you said the uh, internet disproportionately benefits small businesses over big ones. Why is that? Oh, it's like that old New Yorker cartoon where there's a dog typing on the, on the uh, computer. And there's a dog looking over his shoulder and typing on the computer. And the dog on the internet says, you know the great thing about the internet? And the other dog says, what's that? He says, nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> and it's very true. You can get, you can get outsized marketing advantage on the internet without a lot of money. You don't have to be rich to grow a big company. Whereas back in the day, to get noticed, you had to buy ads. That was the only really way to get noticed or you had to cold call into people. Uh, you can now create content. And if that content's really good, it'll spread. You can create a freemium application like that website greater thing or HubSpot CRM or Zoom or whatever you think. And that can spread much more easily and virally these days. Okay. But but now that you guys are a big business and you can do those other things, how do you keep your company hungry to, to do those things that are like kind of weird but might have an outsized impact? I, in general, I think the hunger comes from uh, like we've done all right. We've got a $7 billion market cap. But who do we compete with? Well, we compete with Adobe. Salesforce, Microsoft, you know, those companies are hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap. So it's hard to get cocky when uh, you're competing with those giants. Um, in terms of continue to want to stick with the content stuff and with the long-term stuff, there's I just see so much long-term value in it. Like if you look at where our customers come from today, mm -hmm. they come from search engine optimization, they come from our freemium model. A very small percentage of them comes from ads we do on Facebook and Google. And those are assets that we've built. We talked about assets before, whether I'm renting space on your asset or creating my own asset. Assets we created seven, eight, nine years ago are still generating leads for us today. They're permanent permanent assets on the internet. As a marketer, as a seller, you have an asset balance sheet just like a CFO has, but on your asset balance sheet, it links into your site, followers on social media, pages on your site, all that kind of stuff are assets. If you've got a viral model, the number of users you have is an asset as it will spread from there. So you want to increase the number of assets you have and the return on them. I don't like the game of renting assets. Okay. And, and Content, obviously, has been a core asset yep. from the beginning. Freemium has been a core asset over the last three, four years. Okay. Yeah. What do you mean by freemium as an asset? Because I can understand content as an asset, but freemium as an asset seems like it's more like a strategy. Or a I think it's probably more of a strategy. I just think of, I look at where our, our revenue comes I in, see. half through content and half through freemium, I guess. But you're probably right. And then how do you think about freemium? I mean, like, from your perspective, you're able to understand freemium in a very different and numeric and quantitative way that's so different because like I feel like the experiments that you can run and the things that you can assume as a small startup is it's just you're really in the dark and I feel like a company of your size you probably understand freemium in a very sophisticated way that, that's true we started our freemium business about three years ago so our sales products all freemium 
So it's kind of an interesting story. HubSpot started as a marketing application. I talked about it as $250 a month, and it was kind of an inside sales model. We wanted to go into the sales CRM business. We said, well, there's a lot of competition there. Let's build a better product, but let's build a lighter go-to-market. So we said, let's build a free premium business. So we, we, we kind of started as a separate business inside of HubSpot, separate part of the building. I moved to the part, that part of the building. I had a co-founder, and we worked on it in there. And back then, we were like an early stage company. We had a very lightweight, not very strong yet CRM product. We started getting users in. We started to measure, you know, okay, got that user. How many clicks did they go into the app? Were they sticky? Did they stay through uh, what amount of time? How many other people did they invite? And we've just gotten better and better and better at it over time. So you have to kind of start somewhere. Yeah. Start with yourself and your cousin and your sister and your brother. You can, you can basically give them the application. Tell them to, to talk out loud as they're going through the application. Tell them where they get frustrated and just keep it's a very iterative process and we're by no means done. I, one thing I've come to understand uh, while working at YC is that freemium won't work for every company, mostly because like what it requires is a very, very large um, market. And so, like, I think for marketing software, I was lucky to be in one with, like, form software, I think website creation, et cetera. The market's so huge. Like, every company needs one of these things. And so, therefore, it's okay to give away the product. It's sort of this inverse model of, like, free samples. So, that way, that small conversion, you're still making money off of because the market's so huge. When a company is a little bit more specialized or the market that they're going after is a little bit smaller, um, how do... <laughs> How do they rethink their sort of pricing and model? Because you guys started off doing sales, which is what a lot of those companies will have to do. And so, I don't know. How I do, think how do you guys in, think about it? If you're in it? a very niche business, if mm-hmm. you're in the business of there's only 100 potential customers in the world and they're the CIOs of the car companies, you might make an argument that that's not the best way to market. Yeah. But if those CIOs are making the decision based on how everybody's using your product internally and all the influencers coming at them, it still might be a good fit because I don't know, almost every company I know, CIOs are making decisions, not anymore based on top down decisions, but they're looking at who's using these applications, who's using these pieces of software, and who's lobbying them to make those yeah. decisions. They be, all these decisions become bottoms up. Our CIO doesn't make any decisions unless somebody in some line of business is screaming at them, hey, we need to, yeah. we need to have this piece of software. It doesn't, also, the CIO has lost a lot of power. It used to be you have to get approval to getting on their network. That doesn't have, have to happen anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you saw it with GitHub. That was the first time I saw it. It was like everyone was using GitHub so yep. by default. Gmail, Slack. Yeah. Yep. For better or worse. Atlassian. <laughs> yep. Um, so in, in terms of other assets, I'm curious, now that you guys have been around for 13 years, um, were there any things that you thought might have been assets or basically like foundational elements that weren't ideal 10 years later? You're like, maybe it was a cultural thing, things that you would have changed from the beginning. Yeah, one of the things I would have changed is I would have, I think CEOs are reflections of their founders for better and for worse. Uh, and... I'm not a product person. I'm not a uh, developer. I grew up in sales and marketing. And so if you look at HubSpot in the early days, holy, we had a hockey stick customer curve that we were really proud of. And we we used to raise a lot of money and we used to brag a lot and use with our investors. But our churn rates were high. Uh, Our customers weren't happy enough. And we got very, very good at showing up and closing customers on the first call. But we weren't great at delighting them and making them be very happy. And we use tools like longer contracts to lock them in. 
that's not the right way to lock them in. You got to actually make them happy and tell their friends. It took us, took me a long, long time to figure out the way to build a great company isn't to get great at that, but at delighting these customers and getting the word of mouth to spread. And so our DNA early on was too sales and marketing heavy, not customer product delight happy. And we've really shifted it. And uh, we wouldn't be sitting here unless we made that shift. Yeah. What, what was the main thing you guys sort of implemented to help reduce that churn and to create that sort of delight? Just investing more in product. Like if you looked at our P&L in the early days, Kevin, it was a huge amount of our P&L was, uh, was going into sales and marketing. A relatively small amount was going into R&D. Mm-hmm. And you just look it up. So over the last few years, we're increasing R&D spending by 50% a year. We're increasing sales and marketing spend by you know, something Did you have to that. change it with in terms of like when you're talking to PMs or talking to people about like, hey, when we're designing new features and we want to solve this, like, did you like put like this is a number on the wall and like we're rewarding people who are solving yes. this and sort of number? One of the big things we, we talk a lot about is I would specifically talk and I would cringe for our salespeople about how we're moving from a sales or marketing company to a product driven company. And we're moving from a company that's obsessed with the company prospect relationship to a company that's obsessed with the company customer relationship. We sort of shifted our DNA there and we changed all our company objectives around it. Our compensation plan for the executive teams around NPS, for example, things like that. And genetically we've changed, but it's been a hard change and it's, I think would be much farther ahead if I had realized that earlier. Why, why was it a hard change? It seems like it'd make sense to do so. Is it because it was so sales and marketing we were just, led before? We were just, yes, the DNA and the, and the strength in the company and the budget negotiations, it was so sales heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the input into the product development roadmap was very sales heavy. Like, here are the things we need to do to win new customers versus talking to customers. Here are the things you need to do to delight me. Um, that Those were big changes we had to make. Can I ask you about voice? So when it comes to this content creation, sometimes what I think a lot of founders and companies have difficulty with is like, how do I create the voice of, of like my company? And then when I'm writing out this content, because like there's all these different ways that you can sort of do this. Yeah. And I feel like I've seen lots of companies do it incorrectly. Okay. that's a re- No one's asked me that question before. It's an interesting one. For the first year and a half of HubSpot, we had a relatively geeky voice. We had just graduated from business school. Um, it appealed to a certain crowd, uh, more biz- business school geeks. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that. We hired a marketing person who was good, and he started writing on the blog, and he shifted us to be more, I don't know how to say but more just basic stuff that everyone can understand. That like applies. fundamentals. Yes. that mere, He would say, mere, we want mere mortal marketers to understand and spread this stuff, not just your professors from friggin' business So it, it was like technical or was like quant stuff? Our stuff was quant and lots of stuff from like Michael uh, Porter's five forces analysis of that, that mm. the other thing, shit like that, yeah. that some people really liked. Um, and it's a little bit like Thomas... I don't even know how to say his last name. The guy from Redpoint, his blog is really good. Stuff like that that we would put in there. And we got much more down to basics of like how to. How do you, how do you, how do you create a great blog article? How do you do SEO correctly? How do you, I don't know what it would be, but just very, very basic stuff. So we shifted our voice and we're still pretty basic now. So we're trying to appeal to the mainstream of sales and marketing, sales and marketing ops people. Yeah. We're not really trying to appeal to CEOs and whatnot. Did that shift happen overnight? So you hire this marketing person, they say, hey, I want to switch up the voice. 
Was it immediate? Because I think you see people. Exactly. Took a while. It took a while to convince us. Okay. He kind of had to lean on us. And he was his articles were doing better than our articles. We're like, all right, mm. maybe he's right. So ultimately, <laughs> you fell onto the numbers. And you're yes. like, hey, this is he what He was right. Works. He was okay. definitely right. Okay. And then what about the other... Um, the other shifts in the company, because you, you were talking about, all right, we're shifting away from just being this pure sales approach. Yep. Say you're a, an early startup, you're going to have some metrics, but like what are other ways to kind of like have a mirror put in front of you and be like, oh, this is not working? Yeah, we were very early on just trying to move visitors, leads, and customers. Those are the three things we looked at. And we looked at them quite often. We had a weekly meeting every Friday and we'd go through the, through those numbers and then we'd go through the list of customers and would say, how are they doing? Happy or unhappy? And way too many unhappies in the early days. Uh, but yeah, very early we looked at visitors, leads, customers. Okay. We didn't look at churn. We should have looked at churn. Okay. And then later we really got obsessed with cost to acquire a customer and total lifetime value of customer. And what's the return on that cost to acquire a customer? That's not very helpful in your first year of a startup though. No. no. Yeah, it's challenging. Did you uh have you ever had a coach? I I, I have had a coach, yes. Okay. Yes. Still? Uh no, but I had one for a few years there that was really good. And he was part coach, part shrink. He's yeah. a professor at uh, Columbia, really good guy. And we hired him to coach me and help me improve. And uh he was really good. Really good. One thing we do that's helpful is every year uh, we do very aggressive, I would say the most aggressive 360 reviews you can imagine. So my review every year that uh, that it's done, it was 30 pages long this year. And uh, Darmesh writes it after surveying lots and lots of people. And the first 16 pages are the things I'm doing well, right? These are, the, these are your strengths. And I read the first 16 pages and I'm, I'm confident I'm the yeah. best CEO in the world. I've got this. And then and he the tears double, you down. And the last 14 <laughs> pages are the bugs. Yeah, yeah, and he categorizes the bugs as new bugs or this used to be a feature. Now it's a bug. And it's incredibly helpful. And so I've got that every year. I've been working hard on it, trying to get better. And the coach helped me a lot with that. It, it's an unnatural act to, to run a company, I think, at all. And it's unnatural and unusual to move from early stage startup to, a, you know, we're kind of a mid-stage scale-up, I call us right now. And the company goes through lots of changes and you have to change along with it. And it's a challenge. And I've had a lot of help along the way. Yeah. What, what have been the other challenges? Because like even, even in this spectrum of time from like 2006 to now, now you're this like public face who's tweeting, you know, thought pieces for the company, yeah. basically. Like, oh, I always did that shit. Okay. <laughs> Before Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what, what have the other changes been that you've had to like kind of will yourself to go through? Aaron Levy actually had a great quote. I'm going to mess it or a great tweet. I'm going to mess the tweet up. But he said something to the fact that in the early days of the company, your success is dependent on your being really good at everything. Okay. And in scale-up mode, your success of the company is you're getting the heck out of the way so other people can get really good at what they're doing. And that's been a challenge. Your your biggest strength as a founder is typically that you're a control freak. And that greatest strength turns into your greatest weakness kind of in scale-up mode, that, that desire to control decisions, desire to control the organization. And I think almost every founder, if you're a good founder, you're probably a control freak. You have to shake that somewhere along the line. At, at what point did you, what was like the hardest thing that you had to give up? <laughs> okay, for a long time, I wanted to be the head of product at HubSpot, and I was. Mm. And I made a lot of product design decisions and a, pl- a lot of product roadmap decisions. Um, did you give it up because it's what HubSpot needed, or did you give it up because you realized like 
you're needed elsewhere. I gave it up because I wasn't very good at it. And mm. in that 360 review process and lots of feedback, I was like, Brian, you're just it, genetically, you're just not that good. At, I'm the opposite of your background. I'm the exact opposite. And I thought, I can figure it out. can't be that hard what Kevin does. It's extremely <laughs> hard what Kevin does. In uh, like the talent of Steve Jobs, like you can read about it. You can watch the movie. But those are those are very rare talents that people have. And and I think some of them are genetic and I just didn't have them. So getting out of that and getting someone who ran product that I really trusted, uh, that was a big transition for the company and myself. How do you sort of develop that humility sort of muscle? Because I think a lot of people in charge have a really hard time in understanding that I need to be in a place where I realize that um, bringing on other people is really about me asking for help and being a little vulnerable for the company. And so like, I imagine like part of coaching and part of doing all these things and doing a 360 review where you actually get honest feedback is about like, oh, I'm, I understand that I'm not going to be perfect. And so do you do things or exercise or, or read anything that like helps you develop that muscle? Because I know I have to work on it constantly. I think there's a humility gene inside of HubSpot. I think it's a humble company. I don't know how or why. I think there's always this feeling we're just getting started and there's so much more we can do. Mm. And I just think it's been part of our DNA from the early on. So I don't know. Uh, yeah, we just feel like we're Is just... it one of your cultural values when you guys hire or look for people? Yeah, humility is a big part of it. Humility is an interesting thing. Like I've been out here, so I think I told you guys I've been out in, in San Francisco for the last month. I do feel like in San Francisco there's the sea change going on. Like the old guard people who, who who ran companies that started, let's say, in the 90s, early 2000s, there's a certain personality there, and it's very different today. I'm noticing the founders of this generation of companies and my peers and younger, there's a lot of humility out there. I've been surprised at the humility. Like I met the CEO of Gainsight today for uh, lunch, Nick Meta. I met the CEO of Zoom last week, uh, and they're just very humble it's it's like there's been a personality change in the CEOs over the last 10 years. It's really interesting what's going on. Ben from Pinterest is my favorite. I have never met Ben from Pinterest. He's but like I, uh, one of the most humble and like down to earth people I've ever met. Yeah. And he's someone that I always like aspire to. Uh, that's interesting. Of his temperament. I've noticed it out here. All of the folks I've met have been wonderful, humble, down to earth people. And they're the exact opposite of the previous generation who were you know, a my, my shit don't stink generation, mm -hmm. you know, really cocky. And that's how you just got things done back then. It's changed. It's nice to see, actually. Yeah, we have mindfulness billboards now. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool, man. All right. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you, Brian. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.